Thank you, Tiffany. I'm glad that I remembered the offertory. So I didn't even need to ask you if you had something to play for us. You had something to play for us. Thank you. Well, we're going to read Hebrews 5, verse 11 through 6, 8 this morning, afternoon. Boy, I really have to get used to all kinds of things, don't I? Back again. Let's stand as we read Hebrews 5, 11, 6, 8 from this author who has been encouraging us throughout to pay attention closely to what he's saying, especially the warnings that he's giving, to not grow faint, to not grow weary. And so we read these last verses of chapter 5, starting with verse 11. We have much to say and hard to explain, since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full age, that is, to those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. We'll go ahead and stop there and pray that the Lord would enlighten our minds today. Father, as we study your word this this afternoon, I ask for just enlightenment. I pray for you to be with me and in the words that I speak, that I would direct people to your word. I pray for the people who are hearing that they would respond in the way that you would have them respond, especially with conviction, with faith, with hope and joy. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know, one reason that passages like the one that we find here in chapters 5 and 6 are controversial is because they are difficult to understand. And you'll note that I didn't say that they're open to interpretation because that's important that we realize that. There may be many legitimate applications of a particular passage, but there will not be multiple conflicting meanings of a passage. Because God is truth and that truth does not change, it would be not possible for me to interpret a passage subjectively in the way that I like while you interpret it subjectively in a different contradictory one. God is true. He's not a liar. And he does not contradict himself. And yet, how many times have you heard someone say this is what the passage means to me? And what the passage means to that person is in conflict with what you understand the passage to me. Well, the great confidence that we have in a sovereign, absolute God is that he is a God of truth. And that that truth is not subjective, but it, it, like his character, is absolute. And what's more, God intended that his word be correctly understood. Even though Peter will acknowledge, for example, that some of the things that Paul says are difficult to understand, it does not say that they are impossible to understand. Paul commends the believers for their Berean attitudes and that they went through and they searched carefully. And we know that the, the Holy Spirit is faithful to help us to discern truth from error and to be a workman that is not ashamed to divide that word of truth. And so if we think for a moment about what God's word is, 
Is it not God's revealing of himself to us and his communication to us? And communication is meant to be understood. At least that's what Wendy tells me. Now, a concept might be introduced in the scriptures, which is difficult to understand and comprehend fully. It may even have multiple nuances or layers of meaning, but what is said about that concept should be clear. So what is our problem? Why do we often have controversy over statements of God's clear communication? Well, the first problem is that many people who try to read and understand the Bible are are not believers. That's probably the, the major reason. Even in this letter, we've seen that the author does not make assumptions of those that are reading his letter. He's not assuming their salvation. And I'm reminded of the careful analysis that he's done in the first chapters by comparing the new covenant of Christ with the old covenant of, of Judaism and In chapter 1, Jesus is compared to the prophets. In chapter 2, to the angels. In chapter 3, shown superior to Moses and Joshua. In chapter 5, he is proven greater than Aaron, the father of the priestly order. And what do all those have in common? The, The prophets, the angels, and Moses, and Joshua, and Aaron. They are all elements of the Old Covenant. It doesn't make the Old Covenant bad. But there was a momentum, there was an inertia that was developing before Christ. And it was intended to ultimately propel us into Christ and the new covenant offered through his sacrificed blood on a cross. And he is shown to be superior in every way to all of those things that the people that are reading this letter might have trusted in. And interspersed within those chapters were Several parenthetical warnings, weren't there? It was as if the author was presenting us his argument and stopping every once in a while, tapping on the microphone and saying, are you listening? In chapter 2, verse 1, he said, pay close attention to the message, lest you've listened and, and not heard and drifted away. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, consider Jesus then. In verse 8 of chapter 3, he says, don't harden your hearts like Israel did in the wilderness. And in verse 12 of that chapter, he says, take care lest you have an evil heart of unbelief. In chapter 4, verse 1, he said, fear lest you fail to enter God's rest. In verse 11, be diligent to enter God's rest lest you fall by disobedience. And in verse 14 of chapter 4, he said, Hold fast to your confession. Why the need for so many wake-ups and pay-attentions? The answer is that the, the Hebrews had heard the message of the gospel, but were failing to demonstrate changed lives. They were not maturing. They weren't becoming more and more obedient. They weren't producing the fruit of the Spirit, particularly perseverance during suffering. Instead, they were returning to the ways of Judaism. You can almost hear the author sigh in in chapter 5, verse 11, can't you? Where he says, essentially, I'm, I'm making this profound comparison. We saw it at the end of last week. I'm making this, this comparison. It's beautiful analogy, really, between Jesus' priesthood and Melchizedek. But it's hard to explain because you've become dull of hearing. That's what he says. 
Now, many people who try to understand God's word still dead in their sins, and God has not regenerated their hearts so that the gospel will take root. And scripture tells us that it's the spiritual man that understands spiritual things. And if that's so, then it makes sense that there will be sometimes conflict in interpretation based upon one person being led by the Holy Spirit to understand spiritual things and another not. A second problem is revealed in verses 12 through 14 of our passage today. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. That phrase might be unfamiliar to you, oracles of God. An oracle was a pronouncement which taught something that the listener could not have found out himself, not have known himself. And in that context, the oracles of God would be anything revealed by God that the people of Israel could not have figured out. That would particularly mean the law. So for example, in Romans 3.1, Paul writes, what advantage then does the Jew have? What advantage? He says, much in every way. Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. In Acts 7.38, Stephen says, Moses was in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the living oracles to give to us. Translation, both Paul and Stephen are referring to the law. And so here in chapter 5, the oracles of God refer to the same thing. They are those basic principles God had revealed about himself, particularly through his law, to the people that the Hebrews had been taught from infancy. And so we read on, you need someone to teach you again those first principles. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. Now there are aspects of God's truth which are like milk, and there are other aspects that are solid food. And the analogy here is clever because it compares the process of salvation and comprehending God's word to the process of child development. Children, what did your mothers, do you think, especially, I mean, I want you to reason based upon your younger siblings, what do you think they gave you as your first meal? Now, I'll give you a few choices. Was it steak and eggs? Was it a big, juicy, for all of you vegetarians, vegetable-filled burrito? No? Your mothers gave you milk and pureed food, right? And a baby starts on milk, learns to digest milk, and matures to the point where his or her body can handle and and process more solid food. A baby doesn't start with beef and potatoes. And when each of our children were young, it was our opinion that each was the smartest, funniest, and cutest. Some of them are here today, and so they're wondering, well, what changed? I mean, why did you stop with why didn't you stop with me? Each one said clever, humorous things, and we would record their antics on video, and we would delight in their silliness and share the things that they were doing with their grandparents. Wow, look at this child put together a state's puzzle upside down. (laughs) But what if each son or daughter's body grew older 
but the mind stopped growing? What if as an adult, each one kept saying the same things that we once thought clever and humorous? Here's our now mid-twenties son who did put the state puzzle together upside down and he's still doing it. <laughs> Every time we visit, he goes, Dad, want to see me put the state puzzle together upside down? And that's all that he can do, right? We, what we once thought was clever and humorous would start becoming torturous. And it wouldn't be long before our delight would start to ebb. And, and some of you know what that's like to one degree or another where you're seeing that slowed development, maybe arrested development in your children as they're growing older. Initial joy turns to sorrow at the sight of a child that's not developing, not moving forward. And I think back on those early days of parenting, and I remember some of the things that we taught each child at the beginning, what to do, what not to do. A big one was don't stick metal knives in electrical sockets, right? You guys did that. Don't touch hot burners. Don't try to hand mom the, the hair dryer while she's in the bath, right? Those, those are important things. And these parameters are mostly for our child's protection, sometimes for ours. But listen to this verse from Paul in Galatians 3 where he says, Before faith came... We were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. Now, that's a familiar passage to many of you. And I want you to really process that. The law was a tutor, a child trainer is what that is, a pedagogue that taught us what to do and what not to do for our own protection. Don't stick that knife in that socket. Don't do this. Don't do that. And our children did not always comprehend why we were saying not to do that. They would have the knife and they'd be walking as quickly as they could to. I don't know why they were so drawn like a magnet to an electrical socket. But it's, I mean, it's a common thing. Something to stick in there. Don't ask me why they have a knife in the first place. That wasn't supposed to be an obvious thing for you to ask. But the fact is that when we say, don't do that, they may not fully comprehend why we're telling that to them, but they learn to trust us, right? They obey. And in time, they develop greater obedience, even to the point where they start to understand why we don't want them to do some of the things that we tell them not to do. And there will come a time, we hope, where there would be this consistent action and behavioral pattern on their part where they're actually making the decision on their own, right? They're choosing the right actions for the right reasons. And given a new situation for which we had not yet prepared them, they actually have the discernment to not have to call Wendy and me up on the phone and say, you know, I have this new situation. I don't know what to do. They are exercised in that faculty of choosing good versus evil. Now listen to verses 13 through 14. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the world of righteousness, for he is a baby. But solid food belongs to those who are full age, that is, those who by reason of use 
have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And you see the similarities to what I've been talking about. Those of full age spiritually have developed to the point that they can discern good from evil, right, from wrong, just like we hoped and our children would do someday. And there's another comparison between physical life and spiritual life found in Scripture. It's found in John 3, again, a familiar passage. There, Jesus tells Nicodemus, spiritual birth, says salvation is like physical birth. And children's lives, you know, that in that very visual image, uh, they're brought forcibly out to the world of sound and bright light, but before their birth, they are in gestation. They're little embryos who are developing to become newborn babies. Now think about that as you hear Paul in Galatians 4 where he says, My little children, I stand in doubt of you. So he's doubting whether some of them are truly believers based upon their words and actions. And then he says this, I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Now, what he's saying essentially is this. I doubt your status as believers. I feel like a pregnant woman with the hope that I will deliver a child, but there is a possibility of of stillbirth, of, of a child not being born. And if Paul is equating salvation, if you will, with a successful delivery, with Christ being formed in us, then what is the gestation period? Think about that for a second. What then is the gestation period? That, that time period in which Paul's saying, I'm in doubt of you. Or the author of Hebrews is saying, I have hope of better things. Well, the gestation period is a time in which the gospel is taking firm root in our hearts if we are fertile ground. If Paul were writing not to the Galatians, but to the, to the Hebrews, he might say something like this, and maybe Paul did uh, write the book of Hebrews, but he would have said, my little children, I follow your lives after you leave on Sunday mornings. We'll make it us, the Hebrews. And I am in doubt of you. You still possess critical hearts and jealous spirits. I listen to you talk. I wonder if the Spirit is evident in your life or not. I know, I know you're reading the Scriptures. I know you're listening to the teachings of the apostles uh, for here, and you're listening to the sermons. I know that you've professed faith in Christ and that you're going from home to home and visiting one, one another in fellowship and that you can repeat the basic principles of Christianity. That's all hopeful, but it confuses me. It makes me wonder if you're really sincere because you haven't moved past that. And I'm wondering about those critical hearts and jealous spirits. Why isn't that changing? And so I am working in this labor process. I'm going to keep working like a, a woman in labor pains until Christ is formed in you and, and is evident in you. And we all see the real fruit 
Because the jealousy and the critical spirits and all the other things are all evidence of bad fruit, rotten fruit. And rotten fruit does not come from a good tree. It's not to say that we don't sin, but, but I think what we're hearing from Paul, what we're hearing from Hebrews and other passages, is that there is to be a progression. There is to be a growth and a maturing process that goes from milk to solid food. And both Hebrews and Galatians were written to churches who had members that are, being, that are turning away from what they had been taught. Galatians were being led astray by false doctrines. The Hebrews were returning to Judaism. And in Hebrews, the analogy of development from a baby to adult is used. Paul used the analogy of gestation, but they're both saying the same thing. True salvation is evidenced by a life of obedience and discernment. And our walk must match our talk. And we'll have to remember that as we continue into chapter 6 because the maturity spoken of here in chapter 5 and 6 is the same thing as salvation that is evidenced by good fruit. And remember those warnings that I mentioned earlier. They are given not to believers whom the writer believes will drift from salvation, but to non-believers who are in gestation, who have the appearance of near birth, who profess to be believers, but have not yet been born. They're like the seeds of Jesus' parable of the sower that, that were sown on, on the soil that was choked out by thorns or burned out by the sun. They were never truly saved because they ultimately never produce the good fruit and ultimately reject the very truths they originally professed. Now, while many of us look at Hebrews as a letter filled with profound teaching, and it is, we need to remember it was originally sent with much prayer and tension to a people that were struggling. It's like a last hope. And, and what I see in that, in, in those early chapters of Hebrews, is like, here's all I've got, guys. This, this is it. These are all the things that you're trusting in, and they're really superficial and will not ultimately save you. They were meant to prepare you for the real thing, and that's Jesus. Now there is a new warning given in chapter 6. And it's due to the Hebrews' lack of growth that we saw in chapter 5. And and the writer makes three very important and insightful observations. He says, and this is the first one. He suggests that time, and I'll put it in, in language for us today, time spent in church does not equal salvation. Now, you probably would agree with that in principle, but I don't know... How many of you would necessarily, if you really thought through what you're basing everything on, would maybe be in practice agreeing with that? Because I think it's amazing how many of us think that time spent in church does equal salvation. How often we say, just give me time. I've, I've been in church for five years. I, am, I need five more and I will grow out of this hot temper. I'll grow out of this critical tongue. I'll grow out of this jealous spirit. But time alone does not lead to salvation. 
25 years ago, I worked for a time as a public high school teacher. And new teachers got the worst schedules, whether they were teaching for the first time or had taught for years and went to a new school district. It's a system of seniority that sometimes breeds complacency. And if a principal hired a carefully selected teacher and maneuvered the schedule to give that teacher a schedule that actually fit his or her best skills, especially in high school, many districts would have teachers that were upset that they had to give up some of their classes. Now, what if they complained and said, this new hire has only 10 years of experience, while I have 25. And the principal replied, I'm sorry, but Matthew, you could... You can put yourself in this position. I'm sorry, but you're wrong. You don't have 25 years of experience. You have one year's worth of experience repeated 25 times. <laughs> that would not go over well with the teachers union, right? It certainly would not be a popular answer, but it would likely be true for a lot of teachers. And that seems to be a problem with the Hebrews. They had heard the basic principles of Christianity for years. So friends, as you, as you try to imagine yourself in the position of the, of the readers of this letter, don't bank on the fact that you've been a Christian since birth. Don't bank on the fact that you can count decades of time in church. These folks had heard the basic principles for years, namely what we find in Hebrews 6 verse 1, repentance from dead works and a faith toward God, the doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. They knew those principles backward and forward, first year's worth of experience. But they failed to show lives of obedience and faith. And that is a problem with many of us. If you think again from what I read from Galatians 3, the law was a tutor. It was meant to prepare us for faith. The Hebrews had been tutored. They were ready for faith. They were, they were children ready to graduate from the care of their, of their instructor and their tutor. And in the language of Hebrews, they were poised to enter the promised land. That's what we saw in earlier chapters. Already you saw the dividing of the Red Sea. You saw the deliverance of God. You were provided manna in the desert. You've had God's presence among you. Poised to exhibit new birth and save life, but to the author's frustrated concern, despite all of those positive things that they had experienced, many were turning and going the opposite direction. They wanted to return to Egypt. And so the second observation the writer makes is that the lack of salvation, what he calls immaturity, is, is identifiable. Hebrews 5 gives us two warning signs to look out for. There at the end of that chapter, the first is an inability to instruct others. Though the Hebrews had been attending fellowship for years, though they knew the first principles, they still couldn't help anyone else. They didn't have the ability to articulate the deeper truths of the faith, nor did they understand what the writer calls the word of righteousness. And what that means is they couldn't understand the principles in God's word that led to righteous living. 
And then a second warning sign is an inability to discern good and evil. Now, before we settle fully in chapter 6, let me say one last thing about chapter 5 because I think it's important. It actually could save you years of wasted living. Verse 14 says that the deeper teachings of the word, solid food, are for those who regularly exercise their mind and heart and body to discern good from evil. Now, what that tells me is that maturity in God's word, digesting solid food, is not first about the intellect. That's an important principle. It's not first about being able to read big books on theology. Rather, maturity in God's word is first a moral challenge. The pathway to greater understanding of the faith is not becoming or being an intelligent person but becoming an obedient person. Obviously, key to being obedient is you have to be regenerate. You have to be truly a believer and saved by God. And that's why the author adds in Hebrews 6.3, we'll do this if God permits. It's always ultimately God's will, God's work in our life. But this importance of obedience versus intelligence holds important implications for us. Since Hebrews challenges us by suggesting that obedience and discernment and, and knowing, you know, choosing over and over and over again good versus evil, making right decisions in our life in that regard, that it takes place for that before we're ready for solid food, what that suggests to me is that as a church, we need to put as high a priority on mentoring and discipleship in this church as deep instruction. If we're just a bunch of talking heads and, you know, talking about theological topics and making sure that we've got a good sermon or a solid sermon or a deep sermon coming at you and lots of teaching opportunities, but we aren't prioritizing alongside of that or even more of that, the discipleship and mentoring, then we are missing an important thing. Suddenly we understand the stress that Paul in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 puts upon not theology, but what he calls sound doctrine, which is mature men and women mentoring younger men and women in the church. And I also understand better the work of the Holy Spirit in my life because, you know, I've read lots of books have lots of books and yet Hebrews is telling me that those don't lead to salvation they lead to a greater understanding of the basic principles the milk I know every flavor of milk <laughs> does that describe you do you know every flavor of milk but it's only as we place our lives in submission to God as we truly rest in him and obey, as we exercise our senses to choose right from wrong, good versus evil, that we are truly maturing and ultimately able to feast on the solid food of God. Now, with that foundation, we are ready for the rest of chapter 6. Look at verse 4. 
It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. This is one of the most controversial, difficult passages in all of the Bible. And because of the seriousness of this passage, many have tried to change the wording to read, it's difficult to repent. Difficult to repent. But the word's not difficult. It's impossible. The same word occurs in verse 18 of chapter 6, in 10 verse 4, in 11 verse 6, all which require the translation impossible. And when you come to the point of being convinced who Christ is, maybe even being a faithful church attender without making the commitment to him that is evidenced by a life of faith and good fruit, you are in danger of falling away, of drifting away, as the author has already said in chapters 2 and 3, of not entering his rest, as he said in chapter 4. And if that becomes true of you, if you arrive at a point where you understand the basic principles of Christianity and still reject them, not moving on to solid food, then it is impossible, says the author, for you to be saved. That is a controversial statement in today's church. I mean, say impossible to be saved anywhere? And I know that's difficult to grasp and understand, but consider what happened to the Israelites. God gave them a chance to step forward in faith into the promised land, but they refused in stubborn unbelief. And so God then said, you shall not enter my rest. Would you say at that point it was impossible for them to enter the promised land? Absolutely. In fact, the author of Hebrews reminds us again that God swore upon himself that they would not enter his rest. There comes a point where you don't get a second chance. You don't get to say, well, you know, I was just kidding. I was just trying to test a bit to see if if God was really serious. That that was it. It was no longer possible to enter the promised land. And for 40 years, the people wandered, waiting to die. Can you imagine that first generation having had that pronouncement upon themselves and God saying, well, you guys will all just stay there until that first generation passes away. Perhaps it'll help if we look more closely at the type of person that we're addressing or is being addressed in these verses. Notice it says first that the person was enlightened. And that term enlightened refers to understanding something with the mind. And here's that mind versus obedience issue that I was talking about a moment ago. It's used in other parts of scripture to refer to someone who's been given light of knowledge by teaching. It simply means to be aware of something, to be instructed in something. It carries no additional meaning of obedient submission. Matthew 4.16, for example, it says, The people who sat in darkness saw, the word there is enlightened, were enlightened by great light. That doesn't mean that all the people of Galilee were saved. They were enlightened by having seen Christ and his miracles, but as we know from the gospel records, not everyone believed as a result. 
the light of the gospel had broken into their darkness. And their lives would never be the same. And the same thing has happened to those to whom the author of Hebrews is writing. Hebrews 6.4 says they tasted the heavenly gift. There are a few things to which that phrase could refer. Holy Spirit is sometimes spoken of in, in the Bible as a heavenly gift, but he's mentioned in the next verse, so it's probably not that. A heavenly gift mentioned in Scripture is salvation, but we've already discussed the fact that this letter is addressed to many who are not saved. So he's not saying those of you who have partaken of salvation. <coughs> Christ himself is called a gift in 2 Corinthians. I think that may be the, the best meaning here. And if that's the case, then what, what the writer may be saying is, look, you all have, have heard, you, many of you saw, but you have heard of the Lord in, in the days of his earthly ministry. And it might be said of them that they had tasted the heavenly gift. And there's a real sense even today in which men and women may be said to taste the heavenly gift through the knowledge of the historic person of Christ. Tasting the word of God, as it says. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And the more difficult phrase, though, is partakers of the Holy Spirit. The word partakers occurs only six times in the New Testament. In every case, but one, it means companionship. It means association. It is possible to have an association with the Holy Spirit. To have a share in what He does and not be saved. The Hebrews heard the word of God. With God bearing witness with many miracles and with gifts of the Holy Spirit, they actually took part in what the Holy Spirit was doing in the church. They were in association with the Holy Spirit. But the Bible never speaks of Christians merely being associated with the Holy Spirit. It speaks of Christians being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And like most of the multitudes that Jesus miraculously healed and fed, these Hebrews partook of the Holy Spirit's power and blessing and tasted of the heavenly gift of Christ's presence, but they did not have the indwelling Spirit. I'll give you a quick example of the precise, what I think is a great actual example of the type of person that's being described in Hebrews 6. Turn for a second to Acts verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 9. There was a man named Simon Magus. You probably recognize that name. He wanted to buy the Holy Spirit. He wanted, actually what he wanted more than anything else was the power of the Holy Spirit. And the scripture says there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with sorcery for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, Men and women were being baptized, so Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip, and he was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. 
And then verses 18 to 20 say, And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, I want that power too. Give this to me, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you because you think that the gift of God can be purchased with money. Verse 13, though, said that Simon believed. Obviously, it was the kind of belief that Jesus' followers sometimes possessed. Not the 12 disciples, but the followers. You know, John 6, 66 says, From that time, many of his disciples who had said they believed went back, no longer with him. John 8, 31 says, Then said Jesus to those Jews who believed on him, If you continue in my word, then you are indeed my disciples. You see, believing, professing, is just the beginning. Simon believed in Christ intellectually. He understood. He was enlightened. But he only ultimately wanted to buy the Spirit's power for his own ends and believed that Jesus was a resource for his success. He's even baptized even baptized by the, the apostles as a believer. But Peter's words to him suggest that he was not truly saved. Peter rebukes him as an unbeliever when he says in verse 22, Repent of this your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by sin. Simon partook in what the Holy Spirit was doing. He followed after Peter. He was baptized, but he was not sincere. You cannot buy the Holy Spirit's power. You can't treat Christianity like some kind of resource to have a better life. You must commit that head knowledge to a heart commitment to follow God, whatever the cost That's the solid food. So a summary of the verses in Hebrews might be as follows. The Hebrew readers had a knowledge of the gospel. They had been influenced by the person of Christ. They were convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit. They had witnessed miraculous things. Are these descriptive of a Christian? Undoubtedly. But they don't just describe Christians. They describe many non-Christians like Simon Magus too. They describe any person who comes to the verge of submitting to Christ but turns back. Any of those people like Paul's talking about, I'm in doubt of you. Hebrews talks about, I am concerned about you. Just like the Israelites of the first generation who had received the law of God and all the things that they partook in and yet did not have the faith to move forward. And so the writer of Hebrews hopes this will not happen. And that's why we see the repeated warnings. Because if they do neglect God's great salvation, if they do not take this seriously, if they do not move on from milk to solid food, what does the author say? You have crucified to yourself afresh the Son of God and put him to an open shame. If having heard and experienced and being a part of this association of the Holy Spirit's work in this church, 
If you do not move forward into a life of obedience and commitment to him, if you're just still using Christianity as a resource in your life, what does that say about the Savior that we profess? It puts him to open shame that that has not taken root in your life enough to change you. Uh, Such a convicting statement, isn't it, from this author of Hebrews? We have to take it seriously. If you profess to be a believer, look for the signs of salvation. Are you becoming more like Christ? Are you obedient and walking in righteousness? Are you able to instruct and encourage others, mentoring them in their walk? That's all evidence of feasting on solid food. If you don't see those marks of maturity, then it may be that you're in the transition stage of gestation. And as Paul told the Galatians, I want to make the commitment as an elder of this church, I know Dave and David do as well, that we want to come alongside of you and labor until Christ be formed in you. If you have any questions, seek me out. Seek one of them out. Seek someone else here out at the church whom you respect. For we must be in this walk together. Because it's God's name, as we're going to see next week. It's God's name that is at issue. It's his glory. We do not want to put our Savior to open shame. For God has done everything for us. Let's pray. Father, you are the gracious God of salvation. And even as we read these sober, solemn warnings, we are reminded that it isn't just you wagging a finger at us and saying, behave. Behind that firm warning to be obedient is that merciful, gracious act of having sent your Son. And even as we think about what we've read in the prior chapters about the goodness of Christ, about the superiority of Christ, the fact that we're even talking about your son is a reflection of the love that you had for us that you've sent him into the world. Father, thank you for your love for us, for the church, for your name. And I pray that that would motivate us to move. If we have been stuck in milk, and we know every flavor of milk, but we have not been feasting on solid food because we have not been mentoring and discipling others. We've not been uh, exercising the discernment of good versus evil. We've not been working to uh, really apply your principles in our life, but have instead just been living worldly secular lives lord may that change today it's in jesus name we pray amen